People often ask why I became a storyteller. All my life I've been trying to tell a tale as well as my grandfather. Robert Bob Dotson is a New York Times bestselling author, teacher, and television journalist who recently retired from his long-running series, The American Story with Bob Dotson, on the NBC Today Show. Bob has won hundreds of awards and has shown a commitment to training students, including writing the book Make It Memorable, which is one of the most widely used textbooks on broadcast writing. Good morning. I'm Robin Shannon, and this is Fordham Conversations. Bob Dotson recently paid a visit to Fordham University's campus in the Bronx, where he displayed his fantastic storytelling ability, shared some stories, and gave great advice to a classroom full of eager and excited students. Can we start with a couple of tips you might have, Bob? What's the best way to tell a story? So what's, what's your process? Well, you know, all through college, they kind of drum into your head who, what, when, where, and why, <laughs> right? That's how you tell a story. Know that you got all the stuff. Well, I think that's very good in order to get the research for a story. But I think you ought to probably consider a different mantra on how to tell the story once you've got significant research. Consider this. Hey, you get their attention right away. It doesn't have to be breaking news, but it does have to be intriguing right off the top. So you look for what you've done during that day which would make up a hay. It could be something, you know, like, for instance, if you're talking about, you know, uh, spring day on campus, instead of starting with a story about everybody walking across campus, you start with a bee, you know, buzzing by somebody's ear. So it's just, it's a different way to get into it, but it's it's something that might intrigue someone. So that's the hay. The second part of storytelling is the you. That's the one that's often overlooked in media studies. So what do I mean by the you? This story may have occurred here on the Fordham campus, but this is why your grandmother out in Bismarck, North Dakota, would care about it. What you're doing is you're broadening the story as quickly as you can to get as wide an audience interested in the story as you get underway. And I guess the example would be a really good comedian can make your four-year-old niece laugh and your 80-year-old grandmother chuckle. Well, the, the, the good news is that's a craft. That's not just talent. It's how you structure a story that makes people laugh in stand-up comedy. Well, it's the same way when you're writing a newspaper story or if you get into broadcast or writing a book or any of that kind of stuff. It's all about the structure. And so the structure goes, hey, you get their attention. You, this is a story really about you, so you'll pay attention. And then the next one is C. Probably going into this business today, you will have a very rare opportunity to have a scoop a story that anybody, nobody else has. Unless the plane falls down in front of your smartphone, you're going to be second. So the C becomes very important. And my definition of a storyteller is someone who tells you things and shows you things that you might miss even standing next to them. And the art of storytelling is connecting the seemingly unconnected. So maybe they've heard it a hundred times, you know, on the internet and their friends before they get to your retelling but they're going to like your hey you see because you're connecting stuff and making connections in that story that they hadn't considered so far and therefore you start telling it in an engaging way the other little example that I use is that I start every story no matter what uh, is the media with the assumption that no one cares anything about it most people in our business get into this business because they have a story to tell and they consider that if folks don't read it 
or they don't listen to it or don't watch it, it's because of some kind of failure in the audience. But what happens if you say, all right, I've got this story, I'm going to tell it, I'm going to find the hey you see, but I'm going to tell it in such a way that they're going to find it intriguing, and I'm going to do that by forcing myself to say no one cares. So now I'm starting to look for the hey you, the see, the so, so I can structure it properly. Where most stories fall down is that you assume that the audience has the same background, the same interest that you have, and so then you start to niche your story into such a small little format that you're not really growing your audience, you're losing it. So the hey you see, and the last part is so. So why should you care? Why did you spend an hour and a half watching my movie? Why, why did you want to keep reading this book? And that's the storyteller's summation. Hey, you, see, so. And in today's world where everything is so fast and so complicated and everybody you're covering generally has their own angle that they want you to tell the story through their angle and it will constantly be in your ear, I just take that mental step back. Have I got a hey? And I got the you, how do I connect it, and the so. The book that I wrote, which was a summation of 40 years of the American story, a lot of people my age, they, they write a, a memoir, and, and then only four people read it, and it's people who are your friends, and when they realize they're not mentioned in it, they don't read it either. But I figured I'd, I'd had an unusual front seat on America for the last 40 years, four million miles, six weeks of stories in the, every state in the Union, all different kinds of folks. So I thought, okay, what blueprint, what wisdom did, did these people come up with? Because like I say, I wasn't just doing feature stories. Some of these were pretty significant folks. So when I went to the publishers, when I first, you know, with my agent and we went to the publishers, I was amazed to find out I wasn't talking to an editor. I was talking to the CEO of the publishing firm and to a person, the six uh, publishing houses that bid on the story, they asked one question, not how am I gonna make a million bucks or can you write the story? They said, how are you going to push the reader from page one to page 300? Wow, okay. They're talking structure. They're not telling, talking storytelling. They're talking structure. What comes first? What comes second? And then it started to flow. So I can't stress structure enough. A lot of you have questions on how to get the kind of information that takes you a little deeper into the story than the cliche answers that most people give. Well, I learned two things. One is that people always answer, answer questions that you've asked for in three parts. The first part, they tell you what they think you've asked, and then they explain their answer. And if you wait just a beat before you jump in with the next question, people get very, very uncomfortable with silence because they think, well, maybe I haven't explained it well enough. And they go, well, dumb it, that's why I killed my wife. <laughs> <laughs> now, you were there on a traffic accident and this guy has just told you he's killed somebody because of the silence. I learned that because all of my in-laws were cops. They all pointed out, they said, you know, you watch cop shows on TV, and they take them into an interrogation room. They said, the first person that talks in an interrogation room loses. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, because they tell you stuff that you haven't asked for because you don't know them well enough. And he said, well, you know, it's like when you were coming here on Thanksgiving, if you're sitting on the plane and you kind of pay half attention to the person in the center seat, they tell you about their hysterectomy and their two dead dogs, and you're like, whoa, TMI. But as a professional storyteller, to use that technique of realizing that people always ask, answer questions in threes and let silence do the work for you, then sometimes your story can take a much deeper turn because you don't know it well enough to ask for at that point. The second thing is, and this is 
this will save you not just getting information for your story, but better information. I call it the non-question, or the question that isn't a question. And I learned this from a NBC cameraman who was in his 50s. I was 29. It was like my first month at work. The Shaw of Iran's son was going to flight school out in Lubbock, Texas. Shaw of Iran's dying. So we're all staked out. Everybody wants to get a quote from the son. And you know, it's the typical journalism quote. How do you feel about your dad dying? Well, what the hell do you think I feel? <laughs> you know. But at any rate, about noon, we, we knew he was in this house. And he was being kept secure because everybody wanted to talk to him. And so the reporters flipped a coin, and we all decided we'd go to McDonald's and get hamburgers for everybody and come back. And so the camera crews are all lined up there. So I come back, and Scotty Burner was the NBC cameraman. And all the other guys were around him asking questions. He's on the phone with the president of NBC, the New York Times, and CBS. And Scotty looked up and he says, well, I got an interview with the Shaw of Iran's kid, and I was the only person to get it, and so all these guys want me to be on television, so I told them to have to talk to the president of NBC because I'm, I work for them. And I thought, okay. How the heck did he get it? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we on a stakeout. There must be <laughs> ten people here, and you get the story. He says, I asked the question that was not a question. I said, well, first of all, how would you find a guy? Let's go back to the question. He goes, well, he says, you know, everybody's cameras lined up. We've all framed up the dang house in case he shows up. So they're all looking that way, you know, and calling their girlfriends and boyfriends and playing cards. And I said, well, what would happen if I just turned around and looked the other way? Look down the street. He says, if he shows up, all I got to do is like with one finger turn the camera on, right? I'm not missing anything by not looking at the house. I see a young man walking down the street who looked like he didn't grow up in Lubbock, Texas. I didn't know if he was a Shaw of Iran's son. So I grabbed my camera, I walked down to him, and I didn't say, hey, I'm Scotty Burner, NBC Network Tool. You can see my peacock on the side of the camera. <laughs> I'm here to ask you if you're the Shaw of Iran's kid, and if so, what do you think about your dad dying? He didn't say that. He noticed the young man's looking at flowers as he's walking along, and Scotty said, those are gorgeous roses. And the young man said, yeah, those are beautiful, and he gave the name of the roses. And Scotty said, you know, my dad owned a flower shop. True story. He did own a flower shop. So the kid goes, yeah, well, my dad loves flowers too. And Scotty said, my dad died last summer. Now, he wasn't lying. Mm -hmm. He didn't say, my dad died last summer and I felt terrible. He just said, my dad died last summer. And then he stopped talking. He let him fill the silence. And the kid looked up and went, well, my dad's very sick. Soundbite, 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 soundbite. He says, I still wasn't sure this was a Shaw of Iran's son, but a couple of bodyguards popped up over the hedge and went, oh, but, 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 because they realized this guy is wandering around. So they come running down the driveway, and he says, I turned around, and I'm not going to argue my First Amendment freedoms with guys carrying their Second Amendment freedoms. <laughs> I just shot the other pictures I needed to go with the story. And as they were hustling the young guy back into the house, I asked one of the guards, I said, is that the Shaw of Iran's kid? Yeah. Confirmation. I got it. Ten minutes by asking the non-question. The question is not a question. His point was, seemingly ordinary people who are not comfortable with being... I mean, how many times does your mother go like this? Shoot the picture. Shoot the picture. <laughs> you know, and by the time you shoot the picture, everything, they, they, don't, they want you to leave. But if you go up and you notice them already comfortable doing something, and you comment on them doing that, 
and then gradually bring the conversation around to the topic that you're interested in. And by the way, you're selling yourself as just being a regular person, you know, because there's nothing more obnoxious than a scrim or reporter screaming at somebody, especially if they're just out looking at roses and they may not even be the Shaw of Iran's son. <laughs> and he got it. So the rule of threes, filling the silence, and the question that's not a question. Those three tools in your back pocket, besides getting you great quotes, will also make you turn the story the other way. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Bob Dotson is a New York Times bestselling author, teacher, and television journalist who recently retired from the series The American Story with Bob Dotson on the NBC Today show. He recently stopped by Fordham University, shared some stories, and gave great advice to a classroom full of eager and excited students. Bob, you had a, a, a good comment earlier. You said, you know, if we're doing a story about spring at Fordham, you focus on the B, meaning observation. And I've been trying to talk to the students about how best to observe things that are different as a way to bring out your story. How did you train yourself to observe the small things that create these great stories? Well, mostly by being dealt a bad hand. You know, you go to a a tornado aftermath or a flood aftermath six days later and there's nothing going on and yet you still have to come up with the story. So I would go into a, a, a home and I noticed by opening up your senses, I mean sometimes you can tell people things or if you're, if you're on radio or television you can you can hear things, see things, but if you open your senses you know you could come along and you realize that the tornado went through a pine forest. So it's you know, maybe your opening scene is it's morning day six after this huge tornado that came through here, and you could and you might have an opening line. You could smell the path of the storm before you could see it. Ten miles across, a hundred miles long, from Charlotte, North Carolina, to the sea. Well, instantly people realize how huge this tornado outbreak was, and you're using it by doing the one thing that they can't hear, see or you can tell them what you smell. And, you, and suddenly the pine forest becomes a, a, a huge hook because you realize how big this, how does this separate from anything else? Again, I call that writing to the corners of the pictures. You're telling them things that they can't see for themselves or hear for themselves that helps them connect. And so like for instance, if you're coming into this room and it's four days after the event, maybe you see an apple on the kitchen shelf six feet up and it's got dust up to the core. And your opening line is, when the flood came into Mrs. Smith's house, it went all the way to the top of the apple on her shelf. Well, immediately, if you're sitting out in Montana, you can understand that was a pretty deep flood. And if you're writing for newspapers, it's great because you don't have to actually show the picture. But if you're taking a picture, if you're, along with your newspaper article, Show the damn apple, not just the wide shot of the, of the, you know, like that's, okay, the water's gone, and it's kind of, dis, you know, disheveled, but how does that differ from any other disheveled story? I mean, it, it, people assume that it's crappy. So along with the wide shot, show the apple. And that's what I'm talking about. You know, open up all your senses, and as a storyteller, you know, use the stuff that takes you down below the cliche. Otherwise, it's paint by numbers. And you don't want to be paint by numbers because then you're only going to be as good as everybody else in the room 
and it doesn't work. Some young journalists say they struggle with the edit, where, where they find themselves writing, reading, then they, you know, scribble out the stuff and write again and write again and write again because they're never quite sure when it's quote unquote good enough. How do you know when your piece is good enough? Well, Robert Frost said a story begins with a lump in the throat, something you feel compelled to tell and people are intrigued to hear. And I prescribe to that. This is how I do my stories. I write the middle first, the C. Why? Because it's the easiest part to write. And by mentally scrolling through the information, the sound bites, the pictures, whatever, you're going to pop up at least two interesting quotes or sound bites. One of which you're going to have time to put in your story, but you won't have time for the second one. But the reason the second one's important is because it piqued your attention twice. Once when it was recorded and once when you found it again. So you paraphrase that second soundbite and make it your opening sentence. Makes it a lot, it's already to the point, it already has the emotional factor in it, and it already sets up the topic. And at the same time, to speed the edit to the end is, you play that little game, if I have to quit right now, what's my point? And even if it changes, and then when you get to the editing stage, the writing stage, write the middle first. Especially if you'll find, uh, if you go into broadcasting, at the last minute they say, well, you know that minute 45? We're a little tight tonight, so cut it back to a minute 30. The easiest part is, and the only place you should cut would be from the middle. Because you're crafting, what you've done by starting in the middle, you're not sitting there rewriting, 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 and eating up all your time. You have crafted your open and your close, which are the two things that people will remember about your story. And you'll have foreshadowing so you can get them to the close. So that's what, that's, I think that's a really successful way of tightening up your, your, your writing schedule. Because then you're not worried. If you're sitting down to write the middle of it, you don't care whether the first line sounds like, you know, Chekhov. Right? And that's the, that's the big thing. You sit there and you look at that blank space on your computer and you go, oh, gee. You don't have to have a PhD. And you don't have to talk down to anybody. That's just storytelling. So I want to give everybody the opportunity to ask some questions. How's it going, Bob? My name is Omar. I'm a senior. Um, and my question is, so you've done so many stories um, throughout your 40 years. Which one was your favorite? Or, you know, why? The next one. I think if you're a storyteller, you're never done telling stories um, until you're done. I don't spend a whole lot of time historically worrying, thinking about, well, this, this really turned out great because so many of them did turn out great. The, the, my approach to storytelling is, you know, you can get paid for a very long time by figuring out the best part of the story, presenting that, helping the people tell their stories as well as they can, and then just waving and say, yeah, I did it. But because of that, it's important to uh, understand the process of finding stories so that you can feel good about it. it. It is not enough just to wait for the plane to fall down. What I do is I realize that, that it's probably like more, more like being a gold miner. You're looking for nuggets, and the tool that you use is curiosity. When the rest of the people who are getting paychecks around you are going for the cliches, and all you got to do is watch the political campaign, it's all cliches. I mean, it's like 
somebody said something on Twitter and can you react to it? I mean, that's as far as the dialogue gets. And it's salacious and fun and interesting. It's like a great game, but it you know, doesn't really help as a storyteller because you're not doing anything differently than everybody else did. So if you use curiosity and say, have I seen it done this way 12 times already? It keeps your curiosity. I'm still awake and I'm 69, you know, working uh, and, and having fun because every day has been different because I make it different. It's so easy when it's, you know, when you're tired to say, okay, I'll just do it because I know how to do this. It's, have you seen it done that way before? And if you have, tweak it just a little bit. Not enough to get fired, but small victories. You know, like today you got the lens cap off or the tape is actually rolling or whatever, you know. You know, don't try to think of it as a term paper that you've got to get right forever. But, you're, you know, today I'm going to work on lighting because I don't know anything about lighting, so let me do it. I mean, I wrote this book last year, not the textbook, but the, but the, the other book, because I hadn't written a book before like that. And so it was like going back to school for myself. I was out of my comfort level, but I was learning tons. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm saying. It's the curiosity that keeps the storyteller alive. And so by saying the next story, that's really been pretty much my mantra. My name is Jacqueline, and I'm a sophomore. Um, where do you think journalism is going in the digital age, and how, as students, can we prepare for it? Good question. I wish I, you know, all-knowing, all-seeing. I prescribe to the theory of history that everything comes around. And right now, the great opportunity as well as the challenge for you guys is you're going to invent it. You're going to be able to control it. Uh, if I were you and you were interested in, a, in a, a career in communications, I would also take a few courses in marketing. Because that's essentially what I've done my entire career. You get hired by NBC News, but every program that you work for, you have to sell your idea. So even if you're working within a company, you're not, you can't just lay back. So you have to come up with a way that people can make money and that you can have fun with it and that you can do pretty much what you like. So it's getting faster. There's a whole lot more uh, technically to learn. But I'm telling you, everything I learned technically in college is now in a museum. Typewriters, splicers, film, white gloves, Rolodex, cutting edge stuff, you know. So yes, you have to learn the technology, you have to keep up with the technology, but the one thing that will get you a job forever is the ability to tell a visual story. And that doesn't mean if you're gonna be writing for a newspaper or on the internet that you can't tell a visual story because today's society is visual. And so you have to be able to Think of it in terms of pictures in your head as well, and also helps you structure quickly. I'm Shannon, and I'm a junior here at Fordham. And um, I just wanted to ask, what is the most rewarding and frustrating thing about being a news correspondent? Well, let's start with the frustrating thing. <laughs> I've spent 22 years, we figured it up, averaged was like 200 nights a, a year on the road. And so when you multiply that, it came out with, I didn't believe this, but it's true, 22 years in hotel rooms. And I'm still married. <laughs> and 40, a daughter. And have a daughter. So 44 years, half of my married life, I've been on the road. That is very frustrating. But on the other hand, my daughter got into a job that's better than her mom's and certainly better than mine. 
And today, she is the creative director for an organization that links Hollywood with independent filmmakers around the world. So she goes as a judge to places like the Venice Film Festival and Berlin. And you. Oh, awesome. So, you know, I asked her when she turned 30, and now she's turning 40, why she got into the communications business, and this pertains to this whole table here. Because she said, well, the rest of the people that were around with me, they wanted to be around celebrities, or they wanted to make a lot of money, or they wanted to have a really fascinating life. And she says, I wasn't against all that, but she says, I saw how hard you and mom worked to make this thing float. And she said, but the difference was, when we would go over to somebody's house for dinner on Sunday, if they were college professors, they all talked shop. If they were cops, they talked about law and order. If they were doctors, it was medicine. But she said, when they came to our house and sat around our table, the only thing they had in common was they loved to tell a good story, they were articulate, and they were fascinating. And she said, I finally decided when I was last year in my college, before I went on to grad school, she said, if I have to work hard all my life, and don't we all, wouldn't I much rather surround myself with people who are not exactly like me, but are interesting, and make a living out of that? And I thought, okay, I get it. That's the, it's not, not the corner office, it's not the title, it's not the this or the that, or the, you know, the ethereal thing like I could help people with my work. All of that's well and good, but the fact that you won't be bored to tears by the time you're 40, that's a consideration too. And communications, storytelling, in whatever form that takes, is one avenue that will, that will be constantly changing from the time you get into it to the time you leave it. I'm Casey. I'm a freshman. Um, so part of the American story is really like finding the invisible people. How do you find them? Because, you know, they're invisible, as we say. So, and how do you do that efficiently? Meaning not every person you interview is going to be interesting. How do you try to find those interesting stories in a timely manner so you could put them on air? Well, that's a good question because we struggle with that all the time. Can I just add this, Bob, because mm -hmm. we've been talking about enterprise stories and like mm -hmm. observing and being able to find that. So that, this is right. going to be helpful for them. Right. Well, it's always a challenge. And this is where curiosity and the kind of antenna that you put up in the back of your head, but because you're curious, and you've seen four guys that are, you know, boring. Like, for instance, they had a big earthquake in San Francisco, and I was out there. And uh, there was this lady wandering around, and she said, uh, she was distraught. And she said, I, I've, I've got to get up there. And her, her whole building was tilted over. And so finally the fire marshal said, you can go back in. And after I had talked with her for a few minutes, I found out that she had lived through the Blitz during World War II in London and survived as a little tiny baby. Her parents had now this thing. So I thought, okay, maybe I can do something with her. As Wait, what's to, the Blitz? Uh, during, during World War II, the Germans would come over, uh, before America was even in the war, the Germans would come over and drop bombs all over London. And the parents sent all their kids out in the countryside. So it was very unusual to have a child in London during that time because it, the town was pretty much like Syria today, you know, completely being knocked down. This woman survived as a little baby. So I thought, okay, there's a million people who've got stories, but this is kind of interesting. She's already gone through this great tragedy when she was a little girl, and now everything else is falling out around her. So by using the non-question question and asking and talking, come to find out she had just bought $2,000 worth of china a whole dinner set, and it was up there at the top in her apartment. So there's my foreshadowing. 
Right, you see, we already know, and everybody knows there's this terrible thing going on, you know, in San Francisco, and the whole city has been decimated by it. It was terrible. And yet, suddenly, you've got this woman who you kind of peek with the foreshadowing that she's already lived through this tragedy. I wonder if she's going to find her wedge with China. So up we went with her. You know, and you still cut away and do all the other kinds of stories. And, of course, as it turns out, it was a great, hit, a great geography lesson because I didn't know this, but earthquakes only go in one direction. I always thought it would be like, you know, clean and close, but it goes like a wave in the ocean. And so the shelf that she had all this on, it rocked. It didn't knock them over. They were all clean. So a year later, guess who I came back to to do an update in San Francisco? We opened with us having tea on her China service in her home, which has now been propped back up. You know. So you walk across campus looking for an enterprise story. Just look at what, and just what's going on around you. What's different? You know, and maybe sometimes it's just a question or two. There might be something just beneath it with just a little nudge with the, the silence. And then you come up with an enterprise story that you didn't, you didn't know it well enough to ask but you were curious and there was something about it that piqued your curiosity. Thank you so much, Bob, for coming in and sharing your story. You bet. I'd like to thank my guest, Bob Dodson. I'd also like to thank my producer, Kyle McKee. You've been listening to Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon.